Welcome, dear readers. You're listening to Time to Read, a Winnipeg Public Library podcast book club. We're recording today from the Carol Shields Auditorium at Millennium Library in Winnipeg, which is within Treaty 1 territory, the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Inanu, and Dakota peoples, and in the national homeland of the Red River Métis. Our drinking water comes from Shoal Lake 41st Nation in Treaty 3 territory. In this episode, we will be discussing If Beale Street Could Talk by James Baldwin. I'm Dennis from the Idea Mill, and I can't read the title of this book without hearing Louis Armstrong's voice in my head. Across the table from me is... I'm Toby. I'm an outreach librarian based out of here at Millennium Library, and across uh, the table from me is... Hi, I'm Trevor from the Louisville Library, and I was today years old when I realized that in the song Walking in Memphis, the line, walking 10 feet off of Beale, referred to Beale Street. Mm-hmm. A good book can carry me away from an ever-engined ordinary day, yeah. So keep it down, leave me alone, close the doors and turn off the phone, cause all I ever really need is a little more time to read. And you, dear readers, we wouldn't do this without you. We'd love to hear from you. Why not get in touch and tell us what you think of the books we're reading? You can find our email address and all our social media outlets by going to wpl-podcast.winnipeg.ca and scrolling to the bottom of the page. Hang around till the end of the episode to enjoy our favorite segment, Nerd Words for Word Nerds. Before we do in, let's do a quick check-in with the panel. I want to promote quickly um, a program that's coming up. If you're listening to this on the day it comes out or um, shortly after it comes out, the library is running a program on Monday, December 4th. It's called Next Page Live. It's where a bunch of librarians recommend books, and the theme is going to be reads that make great holiday gifts. So if you uh, are buying some books for people or presents, that it would be uh, worthwhile to attend. So it is Monday, December 4th. It's 6.30 to 7.15. It's on Zoom. So you don't need to be a Winnipeg resident to attend. You don't need to have a Winnipeg Public Library card to attend. And we've done these a couple times before. And they're always really fun. Sounds great. My boss is one of the people who does those. So I also highly recommend it because she makes awesome book recommendations just like Toby does about different books. Last time around, we had mentioned that we had a fan email from uh, Lois from Boise, Idaho. Just after that, we got another email from a research assistant in Istanbul named Ugur, who uh, wrote us to... Thank us for our episode on Unless by Carol Shields, because apparently he was uh, starting some research into it, and he found it a good starting point. And that was pretty awesome. And to continue the awesomeness, we were mentioned in a tweet by Rosemary from, we think, Scotland, who really enjoyed our episode 50, which was our uh, kind of a special anniversary episode where we had on members of our group from past and present, and we just talked about books and uh, words and stuff. So we feel super international now that we have gotten people emailing us or contacting us from multiple continents. We just want to thank you all for listening because it's really nice to know that someone's out there listening to it. Yeah, and for our listeners near and far, you may be interested in trying to find some books yourself to read over the holidays. So one place you may want to check is the shortlist for the Giller Prize, which was handed out recently in Toronto. The winner was Sarah Bernstein. Well, she was the author. Her book was called Study for Obedience. So in addition to uh, bragging rights uh, that she's a winner, she gets $100,000. Sarah, congratulations to you. The, The description of the book says, 
The modernist experiment continues to burn incandescently in Sarah Bernstein's slim novel, Study for Obedience. Bernstein asks the indelible question, what does a culture of subjugation, erasure, and dismissal of women produce? In this book, equal parts poisoned and sympathetic, Bernstein's unnamed protagonist goes about exacting, in shockingly twisted ways, the price of all that the world has withheld from her. The prose refracts Javier Marius sometimes, at other times Samuel Beckett. It's an unexpected and fanged book, and its own studied withholdings create a powerful mesmeric effect. Now, most of that's over my head, but I think Toby would go for it. <laughs> I, I like the part about how it's slim. Right, yeah. yeah. I love it when the, <laughs> the page count comes into it as, as a plus. But, uh, you know. It sounds intense. It does. It, it does. Based on the description. Yeah, That's quite I a mean, description. Possibly a future book for us, but no, no promises. Yeah. Well, with that, let's jump into our podcast proper, I guess we could say. Toby's going to tell us about the author, after which Trevor will give us a summary of the book. Okay, so in writing these bios, sometimes I struggle with not finding enough information. And here I found way too much information. James Baldwin had a very full active life. He had several biographers. I mean, even his Wikipedia entry is 40 pages long. He was kind of one of these guys who like brushed up against and was part of a lot of historical moments. Did you print out his Wikipedia page? How I, you know, how you know I pages? Yes, I did print it out. So he also had like a lot of famous friends and acquaintances, and I just wanted to list them because it's fascinating. Um, he knew and was friends with Maya Angelou, Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, Nina Simone, Langston Hughes, Miles Davis, Josephine Baker, Allen Ginsberg, Jean-Paul Sartre, Marlon Brando. They were good buds. And Charles and Heston. So like, wow. Yeah. Really, yeah. Yeah. He got around. His, his house parties must have been amazing. No kidding. Yeah. Right. All that said, here's his bio. I think I've pulled out the key bits, but there's, there's a lot more to his life than this. So he was born James Arthur Jones to Emma Burtis Jones on August 2nd, 1924 in Harlem. He was born out of wedlock and never knew who his biological father was. In 1927, his mother married David Baldwin, a laborer and Baptist preacher, and the two had eight children together. At school, his literary talent was noticed by teachers who encouraged him in his writing, and he graduated from high school in 1941. Between the ages of 14 and 17, he followed in his stepfather's footsteps and became a preacher at his church where he learned he was a powerful public speaker. His time there would have a lifelong impact on his style and on the themes in his writings. He worked odd jobs after high school, eventually moving to Greenwich Village, where he worked as a freelance writer. Uh, he wrote predominantly book reviews and caught the attention of novelist Richard Wright, who helped him secure a grant. Disillusioned by the racism and homophobia he experienced, he left the U.S. at 24 to live in Paris and would spend the next 40 years abroad, where he wrote and published most of his works. Between 1948 and 1957, he lived in France and traveled in Europe. And between 1961 and 1970, he lived for long periods in Istanbul. In 1953, he published his first novel, Go Tell It on the Mountain, which is an autobiographical work about growing up in Harlem. He went on to publish seven more novels, including 1956's Giovanni's Room, which is about an American living in Paris who is torn between his love for a man and his love for a woman. He also published many short stories, many, many essays, plays, and poetry. His essays were often about racism towards black people and what it means to be black in America. 
1949, he met and fell in love with Lucien Happersberger. Uh, they were together for three years. Baldwin was open about his sexuality and relationships with both men and women. He believed the focus on rigid categories was another way of limiting freedom and that human sexuality is more fluid and less binary than often expressed. He returned to the U.S. frequently, both to spend time with his family and to participate in the civil rights movement. His writing on the topic of race had become very influential in the U.S. The New Yorker magazine gave over almost all of its November 17th, 1962 issue to an article by him on the Black Muslim separatist movement and other aspects of the civil rights struggle. And he continued writing right up until his death from stomach cancer on December 1st, 1987, at the age of 63. Mm -hmm. There you go. Very interesting. Yeah. So Bill Street could talk. Now, you, you might think this takes place in Memphis because of all the references to Beale Street, but it doesn't. It's New York City in the late 60s, early 70s. The city is full of crime, poverty, and institutionalized racism. Our two main characters are Fawny and Tish. They've known each other since they were kids growing up in Harlem. Their friendship evolved into romance with them making plans to get married and find a place to live in Greenwich Village. Fani is an artist, a sculptor, who works with wood and stone and supports himself with odd jobs. Tish works at the perfume counter of a department store. This is all backstory because the novel begins in crisis. Fani is 22. Tish is 19. Fani is in jail, accused of rape. He didn't do it. He was with Tish and another friend the night it happened. He was picked out of a lineup where he was the only black person. Fani was a victim of institutionalized racism. Tish is visiting him to tell him the news that she is going to have their baby. The main action of the novel takes place during the duration of Tish's pregnancy as she works tirelessly to prove Fani's innocence. But she's not alone. She has the loving support of her parents and her older sister, Ernestine. Fani's side of the family is a little bit more complicated and divided. His mom is terribly religious and self-righteous and thinks of Fani and Tish's child as a bastard and curses Tish. Fani's dad is on Fani's side, but he seems powerless to do anything, aside from engaging in some shady activity to raise money for Fani's legal fees. Tish and Fani's relationship is told through flashbacks as the families work together on Fani's defense, going so far as to having Tish's mom travel to Puerto Rico to track down Fani's accuser to try to get her to recant. And the novel ends with Tish giving birth. Fani's still in jail. His resolve is weakening. The novel ends, but I like to think the story continues. Did she actually give birth? Yeah, the baby cries and cries and cries and cries. Isn't and cries that the and cries last, to wake last, the dead. Uh, last line? Oh, dang. Somehow I misread that. When I read that last line in the last page, I thought of you, Dennis, because I thought this would be another Rebecca moment where, like, mm -hmm. the last page kind of makes you rethink the whole book and that kind of happened to me when I read it. I know we're jumping right in at the end instead of the beginning but uh, We have a habit of doing that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, that, that line that line really Fonny troubles me. Fawny is working on the wood on the stone, whistling, smiling and from far away but coming nearer the baby cries and 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 cries cries like it means to wake the dead. The thing I was going to mention right at the very end of the book, I don't know if your copy, I think you, we have the same copy, so probably just Adobe, uh, at the very end, oh, James Baldwin yeah. writes, uh, Columbus Day, October 12, 1973, St. Paul Devance, which was, I guess, sort of something that some authors do where they'll write where the book is finished and, and when. I know Stephen King often will do that. We'll put the dates of when he's writing. But I thought it was kind of an interesting dig that he would specify that it was Columbus Day, the day that <sighs> we celebrate, uh, you know, the... Um, 
modern America or something. There was kind of so many things in this book go back to the state of what America was like and and is and, and everything wrong with it. So I thought that wasn't a coincidence that he said that he finished writing this on Columbus Day. Hmm. Yeah. You know, I think I, I rushed reading the I, I just finished it this morning. So I think I missed the import of the crying at the end. So how did you guys find it? I liked it. I mean, it's old. Like you can tell it's it's old. It's dated. It's I mean, it's a 50-year-old book, but what strikes me about it is how prescient it is. Like like this is this is a Black Lives Matter book before that term was even coined, you know? The story of like wrongful imprisonment and racism and trauma, it's still so much a part of America today. I'm thinking about like some of the more contemporary books we've read, like Lovecraft Country and Hell of a Book, which are about these very same things, but are very recent. And it's it's really sad that like nothing has changed. You know, I feel like Baldwin would be really disappointed. Mm hmm. I was struck by the same things that how, even though, like you say, it's a 50 year old book, which 50 is not that old now, now that I'm almost 50. <laughs> but, uh, I, I, I take your point. Uh, the, yeah, the, the themes here, this book could have been written yesterday, aside from some of the maybe more problematic language that appears here and there, which, you know, is forgivable, uh, because of the time it was written. Um, I'm not, I'm not going to forgive it because I just feel like Baldwin should have known better. Like he was so far ahead of his time. We can, we can get true. into that. Yeah, we no, can get it's, into it's a, it's a good point. He, yeah. he was writing about things, even in your biography, talking about his, his, uh, views on, on gender and, uh, stuff, stuff that, you know, decades mm -hmm. before other people would even consider that there was something to talk about. The thing that struck me with this book was that the world is terrible. Well, particularly in this time, this city, I think, in fact, Bonnie says it someplace, this, this country hates black people or something like that. And just all the barriers that these two characters are facing. And yet there are moments of humanity and grace. Like I just started making little notes about the people who are lights in the darkness. Like I'm thinking of the Spanish restaurant that uh, Fani and Tish go to and the, and the waiters who after Fani's picked up, she'll still go there and they'll feed her and they won't let her pay and they make sure she gets home uh, and they look after her or, or that landlord who told uh, Tish, you know, this, this loft is yours. You know, I'm going to hold it. I mean, who does that? You, you know, uh, and even her own family, she was worried about telling them she was pregnant and the way that they responded was not how I thought it was going to go. The fact that they were mm -hmm. so loving and understanding and excited and scared, but supportive. And, and I was a huge fan of her, uh, her sister too. Mm -hmm. Just the, Ernestine. So, Ernestine. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, so, it, mm -hmm. you know, just, so even though it was like the worst thing you could imagine, two young people in love, all the injustice about being separated, uh, yet there are these little moments, you know, that uh, I thought, you know, there's there's goodness that shines through despite all of the crap. Yeah, I thought about that, too. Just the that sense of community, you know, like yeah. I even think like there's that woman at the Italian market who like stands up for yeah. stands up for Fani and even the cab driver in Puerto Rico. And yeah. um, and, and even their white yeah. lawyer who they're all like, he's just a white boy with a degree. And yeah. it's like, you know, he even he started like. You, there's a part where she says he's starting to like believe in this and, and he started to see the injustices. He never saw them before. Not, I mean, he's not the main character. We're not going to say, look at how great Hayward, his story arc, but still the fact that he was there, I feel he was really on their side and we can talk about the ending too, whether how the ambiguousness of it, but I don't know. I'm an optimist at heart. I, I think things worked out. I like too a lot of the stuff you mentioned about the supportive characters, like her family Tisha's family was awesome. Yeah, right. they were fantastic. They couldn't have been more supportive or loving. And that's the kind of thing 
dish really needed because that's a very difficult spot to be in. And that's always that terror moment. Like, I, I don't know how many stories I've heard from real people who, you know, had that moment where, like, I'm pregnant, you know, and then you get kicked out of the house. You're on your own, you know, uh, and you got to do all of that yourself. And then other people, you know, much more supportive and loving, like Tish's family. And uh, you don't always know what you're going to get, even if you think you know. So that was all wonderful. And there were some great scenes in this one, like when they invited over Fonny's family to talk to them. I think I said, oh shit, like four times <laughs> while reading that, because it was just like, it was so intense. It was amazing. What a scene. That's the scene where I really loved Ernestine. She was so fierce, you know, as a, as a protector for her sister. Yeah. Sister, unbow your head. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was dramatic. Except the whole, like, Frank slapping his wife and yeah. everyone being like, yeah, this is just something that happens. Yeah. Well, and, and that actually brings up a thing that I thought of as soon as uh, you were mentioning in the biography about James Baldwin's own sexuality and uh, views on, you know, gender fluidity. And one of the things that bugged me in the book was all the, the talk about, well, men are like this and women totally, are like this. Yeah. And your role is this and my role is this. And then listening to uh, Baldwin's own mentioning his views on those topics and i'm like okay really interesting because one of the things i thought about is also the language like you know the way they talked about uh, different groups of course that's coming from tish that's her voice talking is not necessarily representative of the author's views the author is trying to represent this person this character even more so, I think now after hearing about the the disparity there between the views, it's like okay, so he's he's very specifically trying to create a character from this environment, from this time, from these circumstances, even if it doesn't necessarily. He's trying to, I guess, reflect what he thinks person in the situation might talk like. I'm always a little wary when an author chooses to write from the perspective of a gender they're not or a race they're not, and I mean, I think. He's fairly successful at writing in the voice of this young, like, 19-year-old girl. And he, I think he uses that voice quite deliberately, specifically to talk about masculinity. Mm -hmm. um, but, yeah, there was, there was a lot of misogyny as well. And it really jumped out at me. Yeah. Here. I had that same feeling. Yeah. And I've always had that feeling about, especially men writing as women. I, I know a lot of novels women write about male characters because that's almost the default character you know if your character isn't a white male you usually have to describe them but if they're a white male you don't say anything because that's just what everyone assumes they are mm -hmm. not that we should assume that but that's just kind of the convention right so i understand more women writing male characters than men writing female characters it's challenging and i've seen it done well many times but i'm never sure how to take it mm -hmm. yeah yeah, it was an interesting choice to have her as the protagonist. And, and like you say, an intentional choice. I was thinking like other ways of writing this story could be like with an omniscient narrator. But I thought the fact that she was the main character, she was telling her story, uh, gave her maybe, you know, a little bit more agency and closeness to the story than if it was sort of a more kind of uh, hands-off narrator. Although there were some points where I thought it kind of was stretched to the point where it, like, it didn't seem realistic. Like the whole section where Tish's mom goes to Puerto Rico and talks about, you know, her, like it's still in Tish's voice. 
Yeah, or like what yeah. Fonny is thinking about in prison. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I mean, it, yeah. It, the that'll go so far and it kind of breaks. I mean, I I was very forgiving of it because I thought, okay, well, I mean, but it, it did kind of great a little bit. That it was like, oh, okay, now it was a little bit like last month when we were uh, um, read Gilead, and I kept thinking, there's got to be a point where this character is going to break the fourth wall. Nope, just keeps writing that letter. Kind of. <laughs> I agree with that. I liked the book, and I liked a lot of things in it. But there were parts where the writing was weaker than other parts. And part of it was when Tish is describing things that she could not possibly have seen and would have been relying on someone telling her. And But it was to a level of detail that I don't think a person would have told her in the story. So that was unrealistic. And then after that beautiful scene with the family confrontation, you know, I, I had high expectations going into the rest of it. And I think that was the high point of the book for me. I agree. I think yeah. the story lost a little focus. It got fuzzier as it went along. You could argue that that's because Tish herself was struggling more with more things on her mind, you know, if you if you view it that way. But I just think the the writing was a little uneven. I'm not going to say it's bad, though. I, like, I thought the writing was good overall. It's just that there were some weaknesses in it that could have been a little stronger. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like the good scenes were really good. Oh, they and, were very good, Which yeah. only points up maybe that the scenes that weren't as good are still good, but they don't have the same shine on them, I think. Yeah, they don't have the same imp- I mean, it's hard to have the same impact as that uh, confrontation scene. That was momentous. It was yeah. intense. I wrote down one quote from that when uh, uh, Tish was talking about how Fonny's mother was dressed. He said, she was dressed in something that looked very stylish until you looked at it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the language, uh, I mean, I think that's maybe part of what I didn't like too. So I liked the author's use of language throughout, but there were parts where it started to get a little more poetic. And especially, again, when talking about how men feel, how women feel and stuff like that, that kind of lost me a little bit. That was the weaker part. Yeah, there's that scene where they're like imagining their future life together. And I think Fonny says something like, yeah, we'll live together and and sometimes you'll get home and I'll be so busy sculpting and I'll just grunt at you. <laughs> it was, mm-hmm. yeah. Although that, that brought up a thought in my mind too. Like I'm used to, in literature anyway, or books, especially with a romantic element that we often think of love as like unconditional love. It was interesting to me that Fawny, what he offered her wasn't unconditional love. He offered her conditional love. He said, I love you and I want to be with you, but you have to know that I love my art, my sculpture, that this is an important part of my life and that there will be times where I do not give you attention and I do not give you what you need because I need to also do this. So this is what I'm offering you. And Tish is like, yes, I will take that offer. You know, I will take the part. I don't think he's that great of a catch, to be honest. You know, he's a nice guy. Is he, though? Like, at he one point, um, I feel like Tish says something like, yeah, Fonny tells me I'm not very smart. You know, like, it's, he, I just don't, I yeah. don't see much love on, but, I mean, I, they get along, they have good dialogue, you know, they've known each other for so long, but I just, I don't see what's so great about him. Well, and also, you know, you know they say you can't read tone in text. So, like, there's the scene where, when their pal Daniel is over talking, and then Fonny says, like, yeah, she's not that good looking, but she yeah. sure can, you know, work the, work the dishes or something. <laughs> and so I'm like, that is a dick thing to say, but maybe it's said lovingly. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I, like, you know, maybe it's a thing they have like, Oh yeah. Okay. This is a part where I'm going to stick my white boy nose into a culture thing and say that I was a fan of Bo Diddley, the musician, and he has some songs, which are actually just 
two characters insulting each other over and over again. And I was reading the liner notes for the book and he said this was like uh, culturally when he grew up, this was the thing you did among black people of a certain group like you sat around and you insulted each other over and over again but she never insults him well it's also in her voice so she's not sharing necessarily the but there there was like a culture of if you can if you get upset about when someone calls you names then it's going to be very hard out there where people are always calling you names where you are looked down upon by other elements of society all the time and so it's kind of a way of toughening up and so there's a lot of teasing a lot of knocking each other you know your mama jokes like things like that and the whole idea is that you don't let yourself get thrown by them and i i felt that dynamic in all of the family stuff that he had in the book so it might be something like that. But I also got the impression, based on the way that they talked about it, that Fawny and Tish aren't particularly attractive, particularly intelligent. They're just average kind of... But when you love someone that, like, yeah. you don't... That doesn't matter. And, like, you love someone, they're beautiful to you. Well, that's true. And that's yeah. the way I feel. And yeah. I would never say anything remotely like that to my wife. Yeah, um, or to, like, your friend, you know? Oh, she's not very pretty, but she sure can cook. Like, no, but, yeah. I mean, True. come on. But I'm just saying, like, there may be cultural elements here that mitigate that and that we in 2023 as middle-class white people are not in on so much, you know? Because Tish definitely felt like Fonny loved her. Yes. And that she loved Fawny. Yeah. Like, that was very clear in the writing. And she had no doubts about it. But also, she's 19. And yeah. she's lost her virginity to this guy. He's True. the only person she's ever slept with. And, like, you remember what it's like to be 19. Like, sex is love. Right? No? Okay. Yeah. That wasn't my impression at 19. Uh, but. I was reading comic books when I was 19 <laughs> and riding my BMX around St. James. <laughs> Again, some, some maybe cultural differences here. <laughs> but you know the, the whole idea about maybe the 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 insulting and 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 having a fight, and then it really doesn't mean what we think it might mean. Also comes into play when that big confrontation scene, because it ends with a big blowout fight and yelling back and forth between Fonny's mom and Fonny's sisters, and particularly between Tish and Adrian. And then later on in the book, Adrian calls Tish to say, "Have you seen my dad?" Mm-hmm. And then and she's like, "No." And then she says, "Oh, I you know you're you, you, I know you hate me." And she goes, "I don't hate you." You know, yeah, we had a little bit of a disagreement mm-hmm. there, but that's over. And I, I love Fawny. And if I love Fawny, I got to love you. And, you know, it's yeah. all right. It's all right. You know, and it was all sort of like, yeah, that's under the bridge. Like we're family, you know? And so there was that kind of, again, I didn't know how to take all that because, you know, after, after Fawny says she's not that great looking, but she's, she can handle the, the dishes. Tish doesn't seem that upset by it. She tells it almost like an anecdote. She doesn't, you know, there wasn't like an internal monologue that really hurt me. And, uh, you know, I was mad for a week. Like it was, it wasn't, it was just sort of like, oh, that's just us. That's a fond memory of us hanging out with our friend who I realized afterwards it wasn't just, uh, Fawny's friend, but that Daniel guy was in the neighborhood, right? He was, he was the one that there's that big fight where she knocks mm-hmm. his tooth out and that was, she was involved. So he's like just this kid from the neighborhood, right? Who they reconnect with. They yeah. both do. They both have a history with them, which makes it kind of extra special. Mm-hmm. I wonder if there's just sort of an inevitability to their relationship, you know, like they're, they're childhood friends, they grow up together and they just, they just think we're going to end up together. And so they do. It's not like I should look at my other options. It's like Fonny has always been there, so he'll continue to always be there. It's possible. I mean, the way Tish described it was that Fonny was so real to her that no one else seemed to be. 
like she, that other boys just weren't and interesting there were moments to too, her. Like when, when uh, Fani would like disappear for a while and she was just like pining for him and like, like the spot where he would, after the fight, he was sent, you know, into the country or whatever and she kind of nervously goes into the dad's Well, tailor. she was also worried that she gave him lockjaw and he well, was going to die. Yeah. yeah, but also she yeah. was just missing him, you yeah. know, and... Well, and also the big one was, you know, they were together and then he got an erection being near her and then they like... And he took off for a couple of weeks where he was apparently sleeping around as much as possible (laughs) to, I guess, prove to himself that this feeling I'm feeling, I could feel it for anybody. So I'm going to go and just prove I can feel it for anybody. And then he decides. See, that's a dick move. Yeah. Literally. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Literally. Uh, and, uh, this is a healthier comes... cause uh, by saying that he was a, guy, a decent guy. I forgot about that part. Yeah. Well, Tish didn't seem to mind it. Although, again, the author is... The author is Tish, right? Well, the yeah. narrator is Tish, but the author is not a well, woman. Yeah, so I mean, the author, yeah. That's, that's, that's where you could ask the question. But, um, yeah. I mean, the relationship wasn't perfect by any means. We can definitely say that. But it felt to me like they actually loved each other and would have treated each other well. Aside from the relationship themes, you know, the other big theme of the book is justice or the lack thereof, mm-hmm. which drove every character in the story pretty much. Yeah, I mean, we talked about the joy and the sense of community and all these people who are on Fawny and Tisha's side. But there's like one bad guy here, you know, Officer Bell, and he's like, you know, the white guy. And that's all it takes. He is the institution. And uh, Mm -hmm. all you need is for this one bad white guy to ruin it all. It doesn't matter how much community and support you have. Yeah, it's totally unbalanced when you look at it that way, right? It's this one guy who kind of sets things in motion. And then like, the system is rigged against them, despite all the people that are trying their hardest to create community and, and love them and support them. It's a losing cause. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's made more blatant by the fact that these characters like Fawny doesn't seem to be the type to cause a lot of trouble in any way. He's, he wants to do his art. He works to keep himself fed and, but he's not carousing aside from that couple of weeks and uh, he's not getting into trouble. He's not stealing anything. Well, he stole his uh, sculpting supplies from the school, but um, but yeah, well, well, just you know, well, you know, yeah. Who hasn't stolen art supplies from their high school? <laughs> <laughs> you got something you want to see? <laughs> I never took art. I yeah. peaked at grade four. <laughs> but yeah, once things are set in motion, once you're caught in the system, it's really hard to get out. And, and, and I think it's telling, too, that the woman who accuses Fani is also a person of color. She's Puerto yeah. Rican. And again, like she's as much a pawn in this whole sad machine than Fani is, too. You know, and yeah. well, she's completely a victim. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. She was raped. And then the police say, we got got your guy and we just want you to look at a lineup. And there's only one person who looks remotely like the person she saw in the dark. Mm hmm. So she says, yeah, that's the guy. And then he doesn't want to deal with it anymore because it's traumatic and, uh, you know, she, she goes back home. I think it's even more than that. I think the, the prosecution gets her out of New York. Like, I think they, they are aiding and abetting mm-hmm. her to disappear. Like, they have, her, they have her testimony and that's all they need. They want to make her disappear. They'd be happy if she never appeared again until they need her made for the trial or whatever. Like, 
Yeah, that was the thing. Like, they would have needed her at the trial because you need a certain amount. And that's where a lot of rape cases fall apart when the person won't go to court and testify because it's traumatizing to go to court and testify and have your assaulter there staring at you. So I would think that without her there the case would have fallen apart. I think that they were alluding to that at the end there where uh, they may have destroyed their own case since she's not coming back from Puerto Rico anymore. Right. right. I think it's it's right what you said, Toby, about how there was like one villain. It was Belle because you could say, you know, the the woman that was accusing was, but she's not. I didn't see her as a villain. I think the book did a good job of showing that she was just also someone that's being used by the system and someone to feel sympathy for. Yeah, I mean, we see Belle has a, a vendetta specifically against Fawny, yeah. like the scene at the market. And then later when he like comes across Tish and yeah, there's like a weird... Creepy. I'm going to carry you. Yeah, yeah, stuff yeah and he like and just... gets an erection. Isn't, isn't that part of it? Yeah, um, it was and, super, yeah. super creepy yeah, vibes. Yeah, it was very creepy. Yeah. yeah. And, and, then the, and there's that backstory that he had killed... Uh, a, oh, a black yeah. a kid, I think, yeah. the year before in Brooklyn yeah. or something. And so he's got a history of, yeah. not that he even needed it, but yeah, it's like if you need anything, uh, any more reason to hate this guy, he, he's had a history of, of uh, violent behavior on the job. And an ex-wife that hates him or something, I think. Wasn't there, oh, I don't remember that. There's something about either trying to get the ex-wife in, into the courtroom. That was part of Hayward's oh, plan yes. to try to throw yeah. Bell off. It, yeah, he wasn't a good guy. Most of the characters in the book are decent people. Mm-hmm. The only other one that you and really disliking was uh, Fonny's mom. Uh, right. Mrs. Hunt. Yes. Sanctified woman. Sanctified woman. Yeah. <laughs> who I think is just like a, a caricature of that, you know, religious black woman who cares for God above anything else, you know, even her own family. And there's that crazy, like when Fonny's talking about the role playing that his parents did. Oh my did, God. Where, where she plays, you know, like it's <laughs> basically a version of herself, but he plays a guy that's a, that's a, a, an like, unbeliever. The and fact like, that he hears all of that and then tells <laughs> Tish, like you'd be scarred for life. Yeah. That, I mean, that you're making you oh. like not want to have sex after you hear that as a child. Oh. It's like, that, no thanks. Yeah. The, <laughs> the family Got the dynamics. Lord right here, were, baby. <laughs> the family dynamics were something. Yeah. I mean, everyone's got weird stuff in their family, <laughs> but yeah, that was sector weird. But also like, yeah, I mean, there's some, some weird detail stuff, but the fact that Fawny would know that his dad is just like lying naked on the bed and getting hard while his mom frets about the Lord. Yeah. Strange. I think if you uh, live in like a small apartment and you got yeah, yeah. You know, you, you maybe hear more than you'd want to. <laughs> he he heard it all. Yeah. And yeah. told us all about it. Yeah. Yeah. And Sunday morning he's in church. <laughs> yeah. Some of those details I could have done without. Yeah. The the sex in particular in, in this book I thought was odd. That scene and then also with like Fonny and Tish when they have sex and then like the masturbation bit at the end. Mm-hmm. I, it just like, I don't know. It, it was a bit icky. It was a bit weird. You know, yeah. We refer to his penis as it was his only friend. <laughs> <laughs> it <was like> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anything else we, we can't end on that? Mm-hmm. Can't end on that? No. Okay. We can't, uh, can't end on his penis being his only friend. <laughs> Thank well, goodness no one used that in their intro. <laughs> anything else you want to cover? I mean, we could talk, talk about the title. Beale Street could talk. Yeah, let's talk about that. That seems okay. non penis <laughs> 
Yeah. So I, I alluded to it in the in the uh, summary that Beale Street is a famous street in Memphis where there were a lot of bars and hotels and uh, there's a song that Dennis you referred to. Uh, if the Beale which, Street Blues. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And so, and yet this book has nothing to do with Memphis, or does it? Well, not as far as I can tell. Beale Street isn't in New York, but I I feel like what Baldwin is getting at is that it could be, you know, Beale Street yeah. is just a stand-in for, you know, Bleecker Street or any other street in America where you can walk down and you don't know what's going to happen, you know? Like, are you going to run into Officer Bell or are you going to run into, like, your family? Right, yeah. You know? It's not it's not tied to a geographical location. Yeah. There's a Beale Street in every city in America <laughs> or, or equivalent of. Yeah, and yeah. it's been a while since I actually heard the song, but uh, if I remember, the line that sticks in my head is, if Beale Street could talk, if Beale Street could talk, grown men would have to pack up their beds and walk because uh just implying you know there there's stories there's lots of stories and you don't know most people's stories you don't know the details and if you did it might shock you yeah like maybe we didn't need all the details about Fonny's parents yeah like that but you know there's always stories and all of them are well not all of them, but there's a lot of stories you don't expect a lot of intense things a lot of struggles that people go through. If you heard all of them, it would be shocking to you. Like this story. You have a bit of a sense of that too. Like when that scene where Fanny and Tish are being taken to church by Fanny's mom when they're kids and they're talking about like on Saturday, all this like bad stuff is going on in the street and, and people are out and there's yelling, but Sunday morning it's all cleaned up and everyone's wearing their finest clothes. And so talking about like a Sunday morning experience versus a Saturday afternoon evening. And I kind of thought of that too. Like you're walking down the street, totally different experience walking down at Sunday morning than if you did walk down at Saturday afternoon or Saturday night. So mm -hmm. I thought of the song then too. Do we have anything else we want to discuss about the book or should we move on to our next segment? Exactly. Would we recommend this book? Uh, What's your overall feeling? I mean, I feel like it's, uh, yeah, like, there, I mean, there, there's kind of a, like a raw you know, intensity to the writing. Certainly some great scenes. Like we've already, uh, we've covered it, but there's some amazing writing, amazing scenes, quotable lines, sad, tragic, open-ended. Did we talk about the open-endedness? Did we didn't really. We kind of no. left it open-ended. Kind of <laughs> open yeah. So we're at the end of the novel, I mean, we kind of started with the end, but, yeah. but we kind of, we're not sure what happens. As far as we know, Fawny is still in prison, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. masturbating and sculpting in his mind. <laughs> and his father is dead. His, his father, father is dead. dead, which we didn't yeah. talk about. He died through suicide. Yeah. Yeah. And that was, that was, that was pretty hard. And that also happened mm -hmm. on the very last page. Yeah. That, that's the thing that kills me. No matter how else the book goes, like if they get Fawny out of jail, his dad's dead. Yeah. Like all of the stuff there was a cost no matter what, aside from the disruption to all of their lives and all of the things they had to do to try to get Fonny out of jail. His dad died and he loved his dad. Yeah. And, it, and he's already losing hope, you know, and yeah. to be told that it's just, it's a dark, uh, ending. It is. It's it very is dark. so dark. And there's kind of almost like a parallel to the beginning, right? Because when we find out about Fonny's father, someone says, does Fonny know? And he goes, no, I don't think so. I'll have to tell him just like, at the beginning when, when Tish is telling that she's pregnant, she goes, Oh, does, does my dad know or whatever? Like, no, you're the first, like the fact that they still yeah. have that for, for exciting, happy news and horrible news. They still have that connection where they're going to be the first to tell each other, which is kind of uh, sweet, even though there's that glass of between them still. Yeah. No, well, I thought this would make me feel better, but uh. <laughs> I will say it's like you say, it's raw and it's a little uneven, but I think it's definitely worth a read. 
it's quite something. I stirred a lot of emotions while I was reading it. Yeah, I feel the same. It, it was worth reading. I'm glad I read it. Um, I mean, James Baldwin is one of those names that you hear over and over again. And um, this was the first book of his I've read. And okay, with that, we will go on to our next segment. Can you tell me a book I would also like? Any recommendations? So as soon as I read the back of this book, the back of Beale Street, the summary, I was immediately reminded of the book An American Marriage by Terry Jones. So that book is from 2018. It was really popular at the time. It was an Oprah's book club pick. So it was on a lot of like year end lists. It is about a black couple named Celestial and Roy. He's a young executive. She's an artist. And not long after they get married, Roy is falsely accused of raping a woman and goes to prison. Hmm. So you can see uh, where I'm going. So in an American marriage, Roy is sentenced to 12 years and Celestial is, of course, bereft and takes comfort in her friend Andre, who was the best man at their wedding. And it's really about how these three characters work through this time, because, you know, when Roy goes to prison, they're newlyweds and he's sentenced to quite a long time there. And so how do they deal and do they continue to love each other? Does she, you know, go for Andre? So very, very similar subject matter in a more contemporary setting, but it also deals a lot with being black in America. And I mean, I'm sure that it was inspired by Beale Street. So mm. that is my recommendation. An American Marriage by Terry Jones. Nice. What I am going to recommend isn't a novel, but it's a play. It's called A Raisin in the Sun by Lorraine Hansberry. And uh, what made me think of this one was, okay, it was a Broadway play. It debuted in 1958 deals with a lot of the same uh, issues that Beale Street uh, dealt with, the black American experience, poverty, and institutional racism. But this play takes place over a few weeks in the life of a black family living in uh, South Chicago, South Side, the Youngers, in the 1950s. And so the father in the family has passed away. And so the, his widow and children are expecting an insurance check for $10,000. And so the, a lot of the discussion is, how are we going to spend this money? So each of the adult members of the family has an idea as to what he or she would like to do with the money. The mother wants to buy a house to fulfill a dream that she shared with her husband because they're in an apartment. The son, he would rather use the money to invest in a liquor store with his friends. He believes that that would solve the family's financial problems. And his wife, Ruth, though, thinks that uh, the mom is the right idea and hopes that the house would be the way to go. And then Benita, who is the sister, she wants to use the money for paying for tuition for medical school because she thinks that uh, that would be a way to bring the family out of poverty. And so it's a little bit like uh, succession, <laughs> but uh, but uh, maybe maybe not really. Where uh, does the title come from? Yeah, I don't know. Okay. Yeah, I don't know that. I'll put it in the show notes if I find out. Okay. Yeah. And so anyway, uh, I think the, the play was a huge hit on Broadway. It kind of changed theater, American theater, when it came out, just like James Baldwin's writings uh, left a huge mark on 20th century writing. So yeah, Raisin in the Sun. It's been made to movies. You can see that. The original one had Sidney Poitier. The remake had uh, Sean Puffy Coombs. <laughs> so, uh, how He's guys... in trouble right now. So Oh, so, so go for the original. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yes. You can go, go for the original anyway. Come on, Sidney Poitier. Come on. Yeah, can't go wrong with Sidney right. Poitier. That's all I got. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to cheat and not recommend a book at all. Uh, instead, I'm going to be recommending podcasts. A lot of the book this month was driven by the justice system and the experience going through an unfair justice system that stacks the deck, especially against minorities. You remember several years back, Serial 
the podcast. Yeah. And it, it grew big because it was following the case of Adnan Saeed in its first season. And they had a second season after that. But the third season is the one that I'm recommending today because in the third season, they explored the court system, specifically in Cleveland, because they managed to get permission to like embed in Cleveland. They spent a year following more or less ordinary stories of people going through the justice system. You get to listen to specific case information. They have times where they're in the court with a judge or in the back talking with a judge about different cases. And the first episode features a story of a young lady who goes to a bar, gets slapped on the butt, and she ends up in jail. And once she's been arrested, despite the circumstances that you'll hear in the episode, which don't seem like she really should have been, once she's in there, it's really hard to get out. It's a lot of eye-opening stories from just people just going to regular court, and uh, it adds a perspective, I think, to uh, some of the stuff that was brought up in this novel. And I'm also going to toss in a second recommendation for a podcast called Ear Hustle, which is still ongoing and is produced by prisoners in San Quentin. It's approved by the prison, like they have to get it checked by an officer. So there's not none of this, you know, they're treating us miserably or stuff like that. But it's about the prisoner experience. And one of the big things that uh, comes up often when they're talking is the importance of letters, phone calls and visits for prisoners. And uh, I was thinking very much about that with Fawny and how important it was for him to see Tish when she came to visit. Um, how that was one of the only things that was really keeping his morale up at all. And, of course, the library uh, supports the work of the Prison Library Committee, where the librarians work to bring books to prisoners in jail and corrections so that they have something else. Because jail is really boring and miserable and lonely. And sometimes people are in jail when they shouldn't be. And even if they should be, you still got to treat people like people. So these things all kind of tie into that aspect of the book. So that's Serial, Season 3, and Ear Hustle. Excellent shows. Serial with an S, like not <laughs> yes. breakfast cereal. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that would be an entirely different <laughs> podcast. I know. Yeah. Hopefully a happier podcast. I would think so. So now it's time for everyone's favorite segment, Nerd Words for Word Nerds, wherein our panel shares a word or phrase that we like for some reason. Well, I'm happy to go if two of you are in agreement. Uh, My word is taken right from the novel. And there was a line where Tish was talking about Fawny and why she thought maybe Fawny and and her were meant to be together. So Fawny, perhaps Fawny saved me because he was just about the only boy I knew who wasn't fooling around with the needles or drinking cheap wine or mugging people or holding up stores. And he never got his hair conked. It just stayed nappy. He started working as a short order cook in a barbecue joint so he could eat. And he found a basement where he could work on his wood and was at our house more often than he was at his own house. So the word uh, I'm choosing is conk. And I found a definition of this in something that exists, which is the haircutopedia. Uh, a, wiki, a wiki for haircuts, which this is the only entry I looked at, but I feel like it's, it's a treasure trove just waiting to be mined. Uh, so the conk haircut derived from congoline, which was a hair straightening gel made from lye. It was a hairstyle popular among African-American men from the 1920s to the 1960s. It called for a man who had naturally kinky hair to have it chemically straightened using the relaxer. And sometimes this was made at home, mixing lye, eggs, and potatoes. 
And so once it was straightened, it could be styled in uh, specific ways. So a lot of the early, if you think of guys like Chuck Berry, Little Richard, James Brown, you know, big pompadours and stuff, uh, that was that was the style of getting your hair conked. But then it kind of fell out of fashion in the 1960s because with the Black Power movement, they saw that as sort of like a hairstyle that was sort of uh, trying to emulate the white community and that the Afro is the hairstyle of uh, Black Power. And so the uh, conking style kind of went out for a while there and never really came back. There was jerry curls and things in the 80s. And so I thought that was kind of interesting. And uh, so anyway, yeah, the, the conk. So Fonny never had his hair conked. He just kept it. Captain Nappy. So, conk. My word this month has nothing to do with the book. It usually does, but yours doesn't. So I'm inspired by you, Dennis, who, uh, who just, you know, goes rogue. Yeah. Um, so I recently read a book called An Immense World, How Animal Senses Reveal the Hidden World Around Us by Ed Yong. Have either of you read it? No, but no. it sounds interesting. It's, it's a fascinating book. It goes through each sense, so smell, sight, hearing, touch, taste, and explores how animals use their senses, which is often quite different from the way we use ours. If you want to be insufferable to the people you live with, read this book because you will just be spouting amazing <laughs> animal facts at them constantly. But the word I took from this book, it's a word, a concept, it's umwelt, which means the world as it is experienced by a particular organism. So it was coined by zoologist Jacob von Uxkull, and it refers to the perceptual world experienced by each animal. So it's like a highly specific kind of sensory bubble. So like if you're walking your dog and your dog is stopping to smell everything, it's because, you know, she's aware of a lot of smells that we're not. And that's because humans and dogs have different umbelts. So just a really a fascinating book, an interesting concept. And it's just totally changed the way I see animals now. Hmm. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. So my word is actually inspired by the novel. Oh, this Dennis time. <laughs> disappointed me. Well, my word is earnest, which was inspired by Ernestine. Because it sounds the same, even though it's not spelt the same. As defined by dictionary.com, earnest means serious and zealous in intention, purpose, or effort, or showing depth and sincerity of feeling. And that kind of felt like Ernestine embodied the word earnest. So that's where that word comes from. And thinking about that word reminded me of a story that an English teacher in high school told the class. Our English teacher was also the coach of the girls' basketball team. And as he explained to us, his philosophy of coaching was that when everyone was really tense, like at the end of a tight game, he liked to call a timeout, bring them in, and tell a joke. And this one time, he called the team in. It was a really, really tight tie game, seconds left. He calls them in. He goes, two maggots were fighting in dead earnest. <laughs> And there's a pause. And then one of the players looks at him and goes, and? <laughs> I think that's where I am. Dead earnest. Like, earnestly. But also earnest is a name of a person. And okay. they're maggots, so okay. they're fighting in dead earnest. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Fun fact. That is my middle name. Ernest? Oh. Yep. I'm that, very much alive. <laughs> that's good to know. The importance of. Anyway, yeah, um, uh, the last seconds of a tight game is not the time to bring out a pun. <laughs> I think is one of the lessons you can take from it. But I found that hilarious when he shared it in class. So yeah, that's my word, Ernest. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have this month. Thank you so much for joining us, dear readers. 
For next month, we're going to read and discuss French Exit by Patrick DeWitt. Frances Price, tart widow, possessive mother, and Upper East Side force of nature, is in dire straits, beset by scandal and impending bankruptcy. Her adult son, Malcolm, is no help, mired in a permanent state of arrested development. And then there's the Price's aging cat, Small Frank, who Frances believes houses the spirit of her late husband, an infamously immoral litigator and world-class cad whose gruesome tabloid death rendered Frances and Malcolm social outcasts. Putting penury and pariahdom behind them, the family decides to cut their losses and head for the exit. One ocean voyage later, the curious trio land in their beloved Paris, the City of Light, serving as a backdrop not for love or romance, but self-destruction and economical ruin to riotous effect. A number of singular characters serve to round out the cast. A bashful private investigator, an aimless psychic proposing a seance, a doctor who makes house calls with his wine merchant in tow, and the inimitable Madame Reynard, aggressive houseguest and demented friendly American expat. Brimming with pathos and wit, French Exit is a one-of-a-kind tragedy of manners, a riotous send-up of high society, as well as a moving mother-son caper which only Patrick DeWitt could conceive and execute. Have comments or book suggestions for us? Send us an email. You can find all our contact info at the bottom of the page at wpl-podcast.winnipeg.ca. You can also find all our past episodes there, too. If you haven't already, subscribe to Time to Read on your favorite podcasting service, and maybe leave us a review. Tell your book-loving friends about us, too. And until next time, make sure you find Time to Read. Testing into the microphone. Testing talking to the microphone. Dennis and Toby about the Bill Streets. Beale Street. Beale Street. Beale Street could talk. Talking just like the Beale Streets. James Baldwin, not related to any of the famous Memphis actor Baldwins. Hi, I'm Trevor, and I work at the Louis Riel. That's wrong, my voice. Like Kermit the Frog, choking under pressure. Oh, my God. For next month, we're going to read and discuss French Exit by Patrick DeWitt. I shouldn't have put a lozenge in my mouth. I'm Good Lord, man. Clicking noises now. It's a thing. <laughs> it's a thing. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's all. I'm going to have to do so much editing oh, now. Uh, Talk about open ended. Sorry, I'll let you finish. <laughs> I got a page left. I got a page left. <laughs>